Hello, you're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show dives deeply into a different corner of life in Brooklyn and delivers stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And for the next however long it takes to find out how the world ends, will be posted at the intersection of the virus and the vote on a corner we've dubbed 1920. Today it's April 3rd, and tomorrow is promised to no one. If the constant wail of sirens blaring down eerily empty streets wasn't indication enough, the sight of more and more masked Brooklynites is certainly a sign that something has shifted. And it's strange how for a few minutes, if you can only see what's right in front of you, things can almost feel normal and like nothing major's changed. And then you look down at your phone and underneath it on the sidewalk, another unrolled discarded purple glove. It's scary and it's somber and it's quiet and it's maddening. But I wouldn't know because I'm afraid to go outside. This week, we're doing it all from home. First, we went underground and stayed as long as we could. Then we called the cops, but they all called in sick. Next, we went to the doctor for our weekly checkup. Then our team washed its hands of this whole thing. Next, we talked about sex from a safe and social distance. Then we went to the library by way of our computer. Next, we checked our messages, and finally, we checked the weather. Staying inside for everyone's safety feels like the night could last forever. But if you close the door, I'd never have to see the day again in Brooklyn, USA. In times of crisis, the term first responder is used mostly to describe the city's police, fire, and emergency medical personnel. But as has always been the case, and revealed again by our current state of emergency, there are millions of other New Yorkers who risk their lives to keep our city moving when it grinds to a halt, and whose heroism often goes unsung. They keep the lights on, the supermarkets stocked, the laundry cleaned, the water wet, the trash taken, the packages delivered, and the internet flowing hellishly and fast. We're going to check in with some of New York's other first responders throughout the course of this pandemic. But we started, as most days start here, on the subway, where musician, comedian, and train operator Christopher Morell gave us a tour of the underground and a glimpse of what life's been like down there since the COVID train left the station. Here's Christopher. The following of my views and my views only, I cannot speak on behalf of the rest of my co-workers. I'm not an official spokesperson for MTA New York City Transit. My name is Christopher Morrell. I'm a train operator for the New York City subway. I've been working for the MTA for about nine years. Six years as a conductor, three years as a train operator. I'm currently working on the number three, four, and six lines. Running through the Bronx, Manhattan, and Brooklyn. With this crisis going on, I'm hearing different things about the testing. I haven't gone to get tested myself because I don't show any symptoms, but from people I know who do, They've been telling me it's easier to get a test outside of the city versus in the city. In the five boroughs, a lot of the urgent kids are giving them, but um, I'm hearing about long waits, and I'm also hearing that um, 
you either have to be high risk or you have to work for the city. So I guess someone as myself, I could probably walk into an urgent care, but if it's overcrowded, it might take a longer time. Dealing with the public and the PPE is a big thing. Uh, PPE has been coming in more. We've been getting more masks and gloves over the last couple of days. Um, when this thing first got big about two weeks ago, we did get a big amount of hand sanitizer shipments. The facilities have been getting stocked more consistently with soap, so when it comes down to sanitizer, that's not a big problem. Basically, what they're telling us, like they're telling everybody else, is to wash your hands frequently. Don't put your hands to your face. This is the, this is the, the best advice I've gotten. Nobody's telling us to stay home because we got to come to work. We're essential workers. And with the social distancing, I've seen that get worse as days gone by because when it first started, like I said, it's about two weeks ago when this became a real big thing. We had a full work staff. We was running a regular schedule. A lot of people were told to stay home. I did see ridership decrease. I noticed a lot of people down on Wall Street. I came into these stations like Bowling and Green, Fulton Street, Grand Central. Those stations are usually packed to the edge of the platform. I come through there at 7 p.m. right when rush hour is finishing during this time. And uh, empty, ghost town. But I still see people riding around in the poor neighborhoods, which shows you how the class system is set up. It's messed up that the poor people still have to go out and work. They got to do this to take care of their family. But a lot of the people that's well to do, they're staying at home. So when I go through Brownsville and the South Bronx, I still get a decent crowd. But when I'm in the city, nobody's out there. And uh, the way the crisis has changed the job, like I said, uh, we're losing crews because either they're, they're becoming positive, testing positive for the COVID-19, or they're getting quarantined by, the, by human resources because they probably came in contact with someone or they probably know somebody, might live with somebody that has it. So... This is one of the reasons why we implemented a Saturday schedule. It's because we uh, lost part of the workforce to stay at home. And going from the average schedule, the rush hour schedule, from four minutes apart to running trains ten minutes apart is a real big difference. You'll see the trains get more crowded. And it's, it's gotten from when we first started this, you'll have about two people in each car. Trains are running back to back to back. You have about two people in each car. Now I get a full car, like it's a regular day, like nothing's going on. And like I said, most of this is going on from the, in the poor communities, people that's traveling from the Bronx and Brooklyn into Manhattan to work where they have to work. And you still got people that don't need to be out there. You know, they dressed out like they're going to have a good time, probably going to a party somewhere. But then you still got the uniformed people, the nurses. I carry a lot of medical workers on my six line because a lot of the hospitals on the east side of Manhattan are right next to the six, like starting out in... Um, 96th Street with the Mount Sinai workers going all the way down to 14th Street. I'm carrying uh, Beth Israel workers. So you still see uh, a decent crowd. But like I said, uh, social distancing is not really working out too good when these trains get crowded and people sitting in every other seat. And the buses, you look at the buses, those are getting more crowded. It's like nothing's even going on. They partitioned a couple of feet away from the driver, but everybody else is jammed up on the bus. And um, when it comes to the trains, uh, we don't have any type of uh, isolation going on. I have, I'm somewhat isolated in my cab. 
But when it comes to like blocking off half of the car, that's not being done. That's mostly people's doing it on their own. Like what I've been doing, which is nothing wrong with even doing it. I've been putting water. I'll take a cup of water and pour it in the the two corner seats by my position, like the two ones on the left and the two on the right. So this way people won't sit down behind my position. Because even though I'm someone isolated by a door, it's really just a wall with a vent. And if this thing is airborne, Somebody's coughing through there, I could easily catch it, you know. So I try to use that type of precaution. Um, but nothing's really being done for us in the subway to prevent people from getting too close to us. Uh, I don't wear face masks. I do wear gloves, but I don't wear the mask. I don't really come in contact with the public as much as my conductor does or as much as a bus driver does or a cleaner. And I feel like they should have the mask, so it's a good thing that a lot of them have been getting it lately um, because... You can easily be in a conversation with someone and they can spit on you, call from you. And these guys are here, um, they're head on with these people. Me as a train operator, I'm in my position operating a train. I don't have to open up my window. I don't have to come out unless there's an investigation going on. And when people do come up to my window to ask me a question, I crack the window down a little bit so I can hear what they have to say and I, they can hear what I have to say. Because you never know if this person that's coming to ask me something is sick, you never know if they're going to sneeze on you. You never know if they might deliberately spit on you, which I've been hearing a lot of workers have been getting spat on. This is nothing new. And it's a bad time for it to be going on now with this virus going around. So I take those uh, type of measures to keep myself safe. Um, more people are calling in sick. Like I said, we did lose a, a big part of the workforce for either testing positive or being quarantined because they came in contact with somebody who tested positive. And... Um, it's getting, it's gotten to the point where um, we, we're trying to run service as good as we could because we don't have enough for the work staff. So now it's situations where, like I said, we're on a Saturday schedule. You might have trains running 10 minutes apart. It might jump to 30 minutes apart because we got to scramble to find a crew because not everybody has shown up. People have been taken off of work and legitimately. And, it, and to be honest with you, I don't really feel like we should be working right now. I, I'm very grateful to have a job, but at the same time, I think the subway system allows people to travel more and allows this virus to spread more, especially if somebody is not supposed to be on the train is on the train. Like, we have a big influx of homeless people riding the train now. Because when the trains do get a little empty, these guys are taking over. And I feel bad for them. But to be honest with you, I don't think anybody should be on the subway system traveling and carrying this virus around. And I'm not saying the homeless people are carrying it, but you never know who is. This thing is spreading. Like, my phone is going off the hook. I get notifications. This person's sick. This person passed away. And, and so far, we got about 12 deaths in the system. Well, in MTA, as of right now, from when I last checked, 12 deaths. Um, people, the amount of people getting sick is um, very high. I can't even put a number on that. It's rising these days. And that's one of the biggest things when it comes to um, this shortage, what, what it will do to the community. But I feel like if we do shut the service down, it will keep people from moving around that don't need to be moving around. More people will stay local. The city thrives off of the subway system. You have no reason to be outside past your neighborhood if the subway's not running. A lot of people will stay home. And I think this will slow down the spread of this um, COVID-19. The best way people can support us is to stay home. I know y'all getting tired of hearing that, but it's the best thing you could do. There's no need for you to go travel to see your grandmother 
in the Bronx or you live in Brooklyn. You don't need to take that chance of getting on the subway and getting infected and then bringing that up to your grandmother. You need to stay in the house and wait till this whole thing blows over. So you got to be thankful for technology that you can actually talk and see people through a cell phone. Take advantage of that right now. But right now, if you don't need to be outside, I don't recommend it. I don't even feel safe being at work, and I'm happy. I got a couple of days off. I'm on vacation. Um, but I have to go right back into the chaos on Sunday. It might be even less crews running. And you'll notice a lot of more trains will be running local um, because we don't have enough people to cover the express service. We'll have to, like, smaller lines get shut down. The bigger lines take over. Like, the A line might have enough crews, but the C line doesn't. So the C line's a local train. That train, they don't have enough people, so they'll just send some of those crews over to the A line. So instead of the C running local and the A running express, now everybody's working on the A, and the A's making all local stops. So you, you'll notice slower service, but what can we do? Right now, um, the highlights of this, there's really no highlights, man. It's a lot of chaos and tension. And I don't fear what's going on. I'm just aware of what's going on. And, and, and I'm aware that Anybody can get this. I'm seeing everybody. And, they, and the questions that come to my mind is how are they getting this? Are they touching their face? Did someone cough on them? You get in your cab, you get in your operated position. Like, was somebody here before me sick? You know, you got to deal with that for an hour as you as you operate down the road, hoping that that, that position you're in, nothing, nobody was sick in there before you. And hopefully that you don't catch it. And then you got to run and wash your hands when you get off the train. You don't I, like, I don't even play like that anymore. I run right, I go right to the bathroom when I get off the train or, or facility and get some hand sanitizer and wash my hands. I'll tell you what's good is I, um, I respect the hardworking city workers such as the uh, fire department, even the cops. I have certain situations um, on my train where they were needed and they responded right away like it's a regular day, but even better, even faster. So... I thank everyone else that's out here in this war zone, because it's really a war zone out here. You might not see any fire, you might not see any guns, you hear no bullets, but uh, right now this is actually a, a war zone, and it's, it's most likely it's going to get worse. The best thing I can advise people to do is stay home with your family and don't ride the subway like that. If you don't need to be on the train, stay away from it, because all you're going to do is to spread the chaos, spread the virus even further. And like I said, the MTA is doing the best they can to keep service running and keep us safe. But it's, it's not that much they can really do if we at work. It's, it's really not that much they can do to keep us from getting this. The only precautionary measure I can take is to stay home. And the only way we can stay home is if they shut the city down. But we know that's not going to happen anytime soon because like, we got to keep carrying these medical workers around. So all I could do is just keep washing my hands until this whole thing is over. But who knows when it's going to be over. So that's why I tell y'all, if you don't need to be outside, stay home. And do not add to the chaos. Because if anything happens to you while you're riding the subway right now, the last thing you want to do is end up in a hospital around people that's already sick. So y'all be careful out there. Peace.
Hi, my name is Kristen, and I live in New York City, alone in a studio. Um, I'm doing well. I've been listening to Oprah and Deepak's 21-Day Free Meditation on Hope in Uncertain Times, which has been awesome. Um, One of the biggest things I've gotten out of that, actually, has been recognizing that we all have a choice between um, leaning into hope and love or feeding into fear and discomfort, but you can't actually be in both of those states at the same time. So the former is definitely something that makes me feel much more at ease and empowered than the latter, and especially when I'm trying to think of how I can best be of help um, to my brother who's in northern Iraq and on deployment, and my father who is currently in the ICU helping patients. So for me, it's I feel so much, much more empowered when I lean into love, and I just focus on sending them pictures, um, positive thoughts of good memories, um, funny memes, stories about positive things that are coming out of this, communities that are coming together, getting to FaceTime with college friends with their children and their husbands, which have never actually gotten to see everyone all at once on one screen. So that's kind of been really special. Um, I'm lighting a lot of Palo Santo, sage, and candles in my apartment, um, meditating, dancing like no one's watching because most likely, yep, confirmed, yep, no one's watching. Um, so this is definitely a good time to get into your body and just have fun with it. Um, taking dance cardio classes, super random, and cooking. Um, cooking is something that is I don't usually have time for, it, and I'm just learning to just take time to nourish and teach myself how to cook new things. Um, that's it. I hope everyone has a good day. The coronavirus pandemic has had a dramatic impact for the NYPD. Over 5,600 officers are out sick or quarantined. That's 16% of the force. Almost 1,200 of New York's finest have tested positive for the virus. By March 19th, the NYPD had 20 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Two weeks later, by April 11th, that number had jumped to nearly 1,200. If the reporting is accurate, it indicates the number of confirmed infections is roughly doubling in the department every two days in a city where cases are doubling every five and a half. As with all COVID-19 statistics, the number of cases may simply reflect who's being tested. Some officers suggest there's more to the story. Some who feel the department may have put their lives at risk by being unprepared, by not acting early enough, and by not adequately informing them of the dangers they faced. Earlier this week, I talked to one of these officers, a 16-year veteran of the force, to find out what measures were being taken what happens when an officer is too sick to report for duty, or if they fear they've already become one of the growing number of NYPD officers infected with COVID-19. It's possible. I mean, from what I hear, suppose I have a cough, I don't have a cough, uh, fever, I don't have fever, but I do have body aches and um, slight congestion and headaches. So I called out sick today. I don't fit the criteria, but it's possible. And hoping uh, 
And when the district surgeon calls up, and I'll be able to get tested, at least. According to the officer, the department has recently begun to take things more seriously after seeing five of its members die from the coronavirus and hundreds more testing positive. I'm glad that they're taking serious precaution now. Before it was a horror show. In my opinion, the police department dropped the ball in a huge way. I have a coworker who wanted to call out sick, but he couldn't get through the sick line. He was so afraid that he would get in trouble. So he shows up to work and he's possibly infected other people with whatever he had. The steps an officer must take to call in sick, he says, are arcane and processed through an infrastructure ill-equipped to deal with widespread sickness. There's a sick desk number. If you don't feel well, you have to call up an hour before. So an hour before, I tried to call. And I stood on hold for about 45 minutes, and then the call dropped. And I called again. Now at this point, it's almost time for me to go to work. So I had to text my lieutenant and say, hey, I'm not coming in. So now I'm on hold again, and it's another 20 minutes. So once you get through, you tell them what's wrong with you, and they give you a control number. And then you call your command and let them know, hey, I called out sick. Here's the number they gave me, a control number. And if you don't have that control number, it's a problem. You're AWOL. You're on a roll call, and they expect you to be there. That's why the guy who had very little experience just showed up to work, because he panicked. And also, when you call out sick, you show up to a, um, it's called a sick desk. It's a small room, like a clinic. And Mm -hmm. if someone has the COVID, you're forcing these people to sit in a closed room, possibly infecting other police officers who are just there. If they twisted the ankle, or they hurt, you know, they had surgery, or they had a broken foot or a broken leg, these people are at risk. And while he acknowledges this process has recently improved, and that officers worried they may have contracted the virus can now get consults over the phone, getting tested hasn't gotten any easier. I have other coworkers who want to get tested because they think they have the virus, but they put too many of these barriers just to get tested. To me, that makes no sense. If one of these officers gets frustrated and just says, I'm going back to work, that person could potentially infect the entire precinct. They made it difficult. So a lot of police officers just never got tested. I mean, how many police officers are, are infected right now and are having a problem getting tested? I will find out soon whether I'm allowed to be tested, whether they're going to put a lot of barriers in front of me before I can get a test. I'm just waiting for the phone call to figure out what's the next step. Despite all the strain on the rank and file, Commissioner Dermot Shea told his officers in a recent address to expect to do more in the coming weeks. We're also going to be taking up tasks that we didn't before this pandemic struck. We're going to be covering hospitals. We're going to be covering streets that are closed. You would, what is saving people here and you're giving them a sense of calm during all this. And you're going to do it and I know you're going to do it very well. We should have been prepared. You know, we saw it coming. We knew people take international flights and they go in and out of the U.S. You know, New York City is highly populated. It doesn't take too much intelligence to just sit there and have a plan so that we can have enough protective equipment for police officers to go out there and do their job. Too many times they sacrifice police officers and just say, go out there and do your job and put yourself at risk. And most of these people that are making these decisions have no clue what it is to be out there risking your life. They should have learned from 9-11, Hurricane Sandy, swine flu, all the other things that happened. Instead, they're doing the exact same thing, and they're putting police officers in danger. As I say, you know asbestos was in there, is in those buildings, lead is in those buildings. There are the, the VOCs. However, 
the concentrations are such that they don't pose a health hazard. We're going to make sure everybody's safe. For another officer, the department's response to the COVID-19 crisis conjured memories of the last time the city was brought to its knees. As a 9-11 first responder, he experienced firsthand the city's failure to protect the ones who serve, by command, on its front lines. I'm a vulnerable uh, person with uh, medical conditions because of my participation in the World Trade Center. I'm asthmatic, so I, I, I have the cough constantly. I, I think I looked at my lung function test from my last test, which was of uh, October of last year, and it's like I have the lung function of an 89-year-old, they said. He was worried primarily about exposure because until this week, the department hadn't handed out enough personal protective equipment. I wasn't getting any gloves. I mean, mask is one part of it. The mask is probably the most important thing, but you know, you need, you need supply of gloves, hand sanitizer would be great, you know, or having actual soap and paper towels in the bathroom would be great, which is at best sporadic. Nearly 20 years ago, this officer was sent to ground zero and given very little information about the risks and little to mitigate them. They were telling us the air was fine. And that's because the EPA was telling them. Remember, Christy Todd Whitman was saying, uh, all the air was fine. And then, of course, of years later, after many deaths, they had to admit, well, the air wasn't fine. And they knew, they knew at the time that it wasn't fine. They gave us nothing. And it wasn't uh, until months and months later when enough people said, hey, you know, this is not a good place to be and this is not good. If you remember that day, there was a lot of dust in the air in New York City. You could see it in all the television news coverage. The collapse of the World Trade Center towers created this cloud of toxic dust. Its harmful effects are actually still being felt today. They eventually gave us respirator masks, but by the time they got them to us, we had already been so exposed that it was, you know, closing the gate after the horse has run off. Were you down there helping out with the cleanup and looking for uh, survivors? And so they posted us all around on uh, Broadway and Fulton within sight of the trade center site. I mean, I could just sit there and watch the guys work. You know, I was breathing in the same air they were. The trucks that were hauling away the, the debris, you know, was driving right past me, dirty air being, you know, thrown in my face. Uh, yeah, we had to keep that going. He sees troubling parallels between the current COVID crisis and how things were handled during 9-11. So they need you to do the job. And if they haven't prepared and they haven't gotten the proper safety equipment, okay, so just tell these cops nothing, keep them in the dark, and because we need them out there to do their job, and that's what we need them to do. Uh, and if it makes them sick, well, that's, no, well, okay, whatever. We'll just do damage control later on. For its part, the police department issued several interdepartmental memos about the COVID-19 situation. Memos like an early one on March 3rd that reflected the latest thinking, not much different than the guidance being given to the public, which in some cases turned out to be misguided, like asking people with symptoms to go immediately to their healthcare provider. The memos also included recommendations for other preventive measures, like covering one's nose and mouth with a sleeve or a tissue when sneezing and coughing, washing hands for at least 20 seconds, and not touching one's face with dirty hands. And it thanked the officers for the great work they do every day. And then the memo closed with the following words, stay safe.
On last week's show, we met Mert Aragol, an emergency room doctor in a local Brooklyn hospital that's been completely overtaken and overburdened by the Rona. The conditions he described from behind the pale blue curtain shook us to the core, so we called him up again this week to find out if things had gotten any better. And as I'm sure you can imagine, they've only gotten worse. Here's Mert. Hi, my name is Mert Aragul. I'm an emergency doctor at what has become COVID General Hospital in Brooklyn. We have doubled the size of our hospital in the last few weeks, and it's about 80% full of COVID patients at this point. In order to be admitted to the hospital, you have to be very sick, either have some other terrible medical problem or so short of breath that you need oxygen to survive. And so... In some ways, even though we've doubled our ICU beds, we uh, have an entire hospital that's basically an ICU at this point, which means critically ill patients are being taken care of by threadbare teams of doctors and nurses doing their best around the clock. And I think in some cases, you know, exhaustion is setting in uh, among the inpatient teams. Every service, every specialty has committed itself to the challenge of facing this disease. The orthopedists who normally set fractures are running a COVID clinic. The surgeons have their own COVID unit. The anesthesiologists who typically take care of patients who are being operated on are rushing around the hospital, resuscitating dying patients, intubating people who can't breathe anymore. And the emergency department is full and busy. Uh, we don't know where we are on the curve. We don't know if a week from now it's going to be twice as busy. And that's the scary part because at some point our resources, our supplies, and our human resources are going to be depleted. And then we'll be making difficult choices. Once you get admitted to the hospital, the turnaround time is actually very long. I mean, people stay one to three weeks on average in the hospital. And if you are sick enough that you're intubated, meaning put on a ventilator, there's a good chance that you're not going to make it. At least that's been our experience so far. When you tell somebody they have COVID, you see it register on their face. It's terrifying. And yet there are worse things. I had a patient who uh, he had a seizure and we did a CAT scan and there was a brain tumor. It was a big tumor with some swelling, which by any measure is a critical, serious situation. And he said, oh, I know about this tumor. I just, I'm waiting for the pandemic to be over. I don't want to catch COVID. The man was so afraid of catching COVID that he was willing to live with this life-threatening brain tumor. And before we could convince him, he left. He escaped. We are grateful for everything that people are doing uh, the social distancing and Netflix watching really is making a difference. I hesitate to even consider what our lives would be like in the hospital if this weren't the case. I mean, it would be exponentially worse and um, many, many more people would be dying. 
But the truth is, at least at our hospital, morale is still very high. We're convinced that we're doing something meaningful. And it really helps to get the, you know, deliveries of cookies and the, and the spontaneous applause around the city. I mean, that really makes a difference because it's, it's difficult work. And, of course, you're at great personal risk, too. We've had a couple of our um, faculty go down, get sick. One person ended up in the ICU. Uh, and um, it's uh, it's kind of hard to hard to uh, hard to explain how grim it is, but uh, hopefully it'll get better soon. Can I tell you guys about the package I just got delivered? Because it's so yes, incredible. I'm really curious. Um, like sure. a month ago, no, in the middle of February. I <laughs> this is embarrassing. I ordered a bunch of Dr. Bronner's hand sanitizer from the vitamin shop, and Ooh. like immediately got after the order was processed got a thing that was like we can't do this because there's no hand sanitizer left on the planet and I was like okay that makes sense um and so then I bought like supplies to make my own hand sanitizer and started doing that and then a week ago got an email from the vitamin shop that's like great news all of that shit you bought is on its way so now I'm the guy that's hoarding hand sanitizer I'm so much like rubbing alcohol and like glycerin. And then now I have either 10 or 12 bottles of Dr. Bronner's hand sanitizer. It's oh like God. that's oh if you God. know anyone who- You could set up a little stand on the corner. Yeah. No, yeah. that's profiteering. I need to find someone who needs well, it. Maybe you could like give it away or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you guys know anyone that needs any of that. Stuff. It could be the new currency in a month. So. That's true. Maybe I should sit on this. Uh, but yeah, if any of you need. Uh, either a homemade or professionally made bottle of lavender hand sanitizer. Ooh. Gotcha. It's so embarrassing. I actually do have so a, nice. a bottle of lavender hand sanitizer that I um, lifted. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way to go. Okay, I got to show you something. Ooh. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, hell yeah. Miami's getting tough. <laughs> oh, nice, Miami. Yes. So that's a nice. 96%. How did you find 96% wow, wow. vodka? Oh my God. <laughs> okay, so I tried to get it. Is but that like it's all sold out. It's nothing. And then I got the idea from the internet, of course. And then I went to, you know, my local, like a liquor store. And then I said, like, oh, by any chance, do you have any, like, a vodka or something very strong? And then the woman says, like, oh, yes, we just got this. <laughs> and then she told me. Maybe That's you're genius. <laughs> now I'm ready. Yeah, seriously. That's incredible. Well, if you want some rubbing alcohol and you want to save that to drink when things get really bad, uh, right, right, you know right. who's been stockpiling it. <laughs> Good morning. Sex. 
On March 21st, the New York City Department of Health released a detailed guide to safe sex in the time of coronavirus that set Twitter on fire. One of its authors, Dr. Oni Blackstock, called in from her kitchen table to talk about how the guide came to be, what it covers, and what it doesn't. Here's Dr. Blackstock. When I talk with my team, I have like a weekly call with them and it's so I'm like still under my covers and I'm like, <laughs> like this is so great. I'm Dr. Oni Blackstock, and I'm Assistant Commissioner of the Bureau of HIV at the New York City Health Department. I'm also a primary care physician and HIV specialist, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. We have a lot of community partners that we work with in order to achieve our really ending the HIV epidemic goal. And we just started hearing from community providers, community partners, that they wanted guidance around safer sex and, and COVID and ways to reduce COVID spread. The guide reminds us that COVID-19 is spread through direct contact with saliva and mucus, and that while it has been found in feces, it has not yet been found in semen or vaginal fluid. We really went with what we know about COVID-19 because there's a lot that's not known and it's like a rapidly changing and evolving um, situation. But based on the information that we do know, based on you know the recommendations around physical distancing, we really collaborated with our colleagues in the Bureau of Sexually Transmitted Infections and came up with this guidance. I think you know the, the primary thing is you're your safest sex partner. The next after that is someone, a consenting uh, person in your, your household. The guide recommends masturbation, thorough washing of hands and sex toys with soap and water, video dating and sexting, and disinfecting shared keyboards. It discourages kissing and rimming. The work that we do in the Bureau of HIV has always been really sex positive and non-judgmental. You know, in the beginning of the HIV epidemic, there were a number of like safer sex, uh, you know, materials and pamphlets, and those typically were very fear-based. The ads are designed to do more than catch the eye. They are designed to save a life. Listen, if you're doing anything, you use one of these. You understand? Because my baby is not getting AIDS. Already the campaign has been criticized as endorsing sexual promiscuity instead of encouraging abstinence. Not so, says the city. It just recognizes how real-life people act. The guide specifically talks about what type of behaviors might be associated with spread and which ones are safer. The language that we used and like the overall tone of it is consistent with our overall approach to like science over stigma um, and sex positivity over shame. Using like language that might be considered provocative language for a health department is nothing really new for us. Being very specific around rimming and you know talking about the potential concern there. Jocelyn Elders, she used to be the Surgeon General and she spoke like very directly, and I think she spoke about masturbation and the positive effects of it. In regard to masturbation, I think that that is something that uh, it, it's a part of human sexuality, and it is a part of something that perhaps should be taught. And so I think it's really great to be able to sort of echo and like affirm her message. We know we're speaking to the public and we want to speak in language that people understand and that's really clear and digestible, that's understandable. So that was the process. First of all, masturbation never made anybody go crazy. <laughs> it made, they hair won't grow on your hands. 
It's never given anybody a disease, never gotten anybody pregnant, and you know you're having sex with somebody you love. <laughs> Overall, it's been incredibly positive. Um, we did get feedback around just making sure that people are really clear that when we're talking about sex partners, we're talking about consenting sex partners. So that was a concern that came to us and we were very quick in, in being responsive to that. It's been totally overwhelming. We've seen tweets of it go completely viral. Like I don't know if any other public health tweets have like gotten so many retweets. Even Jimmy Kimmel talked about it on his Instagram Live. The New York Department of Health even put out safety guidelines for sex. This is a real memo. They put this out. We're excited to put out something that was so well received. They wrote, have sex with people close to you. You are your safest sex partner. Masturbation will not spread COVID-19. But please stop doing it on the subway anyway. You know, we just hope that people take this information and make the best decisions for themselves. Let's take a look at one more PSA before we go. Dr. Blackstock stuck around to answer your questions about sex and dating. Here's Taylor. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Brooklyn, USA. This is Taylor. I'm calling from Crown Heights, and I'm wondering, is it worth it to go to a doctor's office right now for regular STI testing, or should people only go if they have symptoms or believe they were exposed? Thanks. That's a great question. So, um, you know, we actually, part of our role as a health department is that we fund a number of clinical sites to provide HIV prevention and treatment services, including treatment for sexually transmitted infections. Um, and so here in New York City, the health department has its own clinics, eight clinics that it runs throughout the city. So one of those in Chelsea is open, um, and that one is providing care for people who have symptoms of a sexually transmitted infection. And then what we're finding out from a lot of the providers that we fund is that they're moving to telehealth and some are doing what we call presumptive treatment. So if someone describes they're having various symptoms or they know they had a certain exposure, whether it's chlamydia or gonorrhea or syphilis, then we would like presumptively prescribe them a medication depending on what we think the exposure was. Hi, this is Raven calling, and I'm wondering um, how to get Plan B or PrEP or hormones without going actually inside of a pharmacy. Can we get delivered? What's the answer? Yeah, I mean, there are um, clinical sites that we're aware of that are taking new patients and, again, using telehealth, telemedicine technology. Um, and so, um, you know, obviously for folks who are on, for instance, um, gender affirming hormone therapy, it's really important to be able to continue. There have been like some separate issues in terms of like supply for some of those medications. But um, for the most part, many clinical sites have pivoted to, to telehealth or like tele telephonic um, visits. That's definitely happening now and probably going to be much more widespread. Hi, my name is Fred and I'm calling from uh, Clinton Hill. And I had a question about... What do you think in terms of having roommates who have lovers who are staying with them during this time of quarantine? I mean, is that cool or not? Should I say something?
that can be really challenging. I and I think that's why it's helpful to have the guidance that we put out because someone could even say, hey, like, you know, the room, hey, Rumi, like, look, look at what the health department put out around this. And so I think, you know, as people continue to hear these messages um, and they begin to like really absorb them, um, it'll probably be less of a sort of culture shift or, or change for folks. And we do hope that by putting the guidance out there it makes these conversations um, a lot easier. Hopefully people will be willing and, and understand really the importance of, um, of following a lot of this guidance. Hi, I'm Emma and I'm calling from Crown Heights. And I'm just wondering um, what type of security we should be using for having webcam sex and while sexting right now. Um, that's a good point. I mean, I think some of the guidance that I've seen that like we obviously didn't put out that guidance, but just in terms of privacy, you know, in terms of people sending pictures or images of themselves being really careful to maybe, you know, not take a picture of their face. That's one thing that um, I have seen um, recommended. And I think probably all the same precautions you would take in any other setting, not giving out lots of personal information. If, you know, if it's an anonymous partner and you don't want that. But it's something that we definitely recommend and we think is a great alternative. We know that people were using um, these technologies before and we think that um, given the current situation, we'll kind of accelerate, continue to accelerate the use of these technologies. End of new messages. Stay safe. Bye. With the coronavirus-related shutdowns came the loss of a major community resource when the city's libraries closed indefinitely. But like everyone else, the Brooklyn Public Library quickly adapted many of their beloved programs to cyberspace. You can now join online book clubs, knitting circles, Dungeons and Dragons tournaments, and even upload your resume for free feedback from the business center librarians. Another popular program to make the successful migration to the digital space is Drag Queen Story Hour. Here's the BPL's Fritzi Bodenheimer to tell us more. So one of our most popular programs this week has been Drag Queen Story Hour. This is a program that's very popular in the branches, always draws a big crowd. Um, we love this program. The drag queens are so sparkly and colorful, and so the kids just love to hear stories and songs from them. And many of the stories they tell are about tolerance and acceptance and love so it's even more important uh, in this time to be able to present that to folks when we all need a little bit more love. Uh, this week we featured Miss Jade. She was uh, singing songs and reading books from her home and we are just delighted to be able to continue that program while people are sheltering in place and staying at home. Aunt Esmeralda performs very late at night, but sometimes as a special treat, mommy lets me stay up to see her. I love sneaking backstage before the show to watch her and her friends get ready. Uh-oh. Going backstage is a big thing. Not everyone gets to do that. It always feels like a party. Yes. 
everyone is getting into drag. Lipstick is being put on. Oh, they're even sewing. They better hurry up, girl. The show is about to start. Doing wigs, styling wigs. When the show starts, I love sitting at the very front. Sometimes Aunt Esmeralda brings me on stage and people cheer. It makes me feel famous. I love that feeling. When people are like, yes, Miss Jade, I'm living, yes. <laughs> of course I know Aunt Esmeralda is really Uncle Will, but I think he's a lot more fun when he's dressed up, especially because I love to dress up too. Who doesn't love to dress up? We all dress up, right? Does anyone dress up for Halloween? Hey, that's dress up. And for most of us, that's what drag feels like. <laughs> Every day is Halloween for a drag performer. I told Aunt Esmeralda I wanted to be just like her when I grow up. And she said I could. She told me drag is for everyone, no matter what. We have a wizard with some cute boots. We have a bearded ballerina. Yes. We have a cop with some red pumps. Even the baby's in drag. Yes, baby. One day, Aunt Esmeralda and I dressed up like beautiful fairy princesses and went out for ice cream. When we got in line, some people started making fun of my aunt and yelling at her. Does that sound nice? I cried because I couldn't understand why people would be so mean. Aunt Esmeralda hugged me close and explained that some people think boys shouldn't play dress up. But here at Drag Queen Story Hour, we believe everyone should be dressing up. Drag is for all. We don't bully each other. But my aunt and my friends are so beautiful. I think anyone who wants to dress up should dress up. It's fun. And you know what? Let's see if I can find this. This drag performer right here with the blue dress and the black and white hair, that is me. So the illustrator of Kenzie's Queen put me in this book. Isn't that awesome? Aunt Esmeralda doesn't always look the same. Sometimes she looks like a boy and sometimes she looks like a girl. But I know it's the same person on the inside. I love Aunt Esmeralda's performances, her closet, her ice cream making skills, and her make-believe games. But want to know what I love most? I love that Aunt Esmeralda loves me. She is my best friend in the whole wide world. Aww. I love that. That's so sweet. Unless it's alien dress up day, then she's the best Martian in the whole galaxy. <laughs> the ends. Hi, Brooklyn, USA. It's your old pal, Liam Billingham. Um, so right now, my daughter, Isla. Isla, do you want to say hi? Yeah. Say hi. Hi. 
and I are walking down the street in Burbank, California. Um, we do morning and afternoon walks because she can't go to daycare currently. And um, she has... Don't hurt myself? Thank you. Um, we're walking past some sharp um, desert plants that uh, she tells us not to hurt ourselves with. She's very cautious. Um, we're walking, going to walk by Isla's friend Eleanor's house. We found out in our various walks that her daycare friend Eleanor lives down the street, so her parents are among our only other adult human con interactions. Um, it's okay, Isla. It's okay. He's just a little doggy. He's tiny. Um, hi, doggy. And uh, so we're going to go do that. Um, and this is kind of our existence. Bye, doggy. Bye. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing now. We just passed the dog. Um, you know, life has slowed down. It's good. Um, something I'm hopeful... Oh, no, I was going to recommend something. Um, something that I'm looking forward to doing is that yesterday was the 100th... Would be the 100th birthday for Toshiro Mifune, the amazing Japanese actor who, um starred in a lot of Akira Kurosawa's movies, and the reason I'm bringing that up is that um, when I was in high school uh, and beginning to become interested in movies, um, I went to the library for a screening of The Seven Samurai hosted by an, the history teacher from the local high school, and um, there was a talk after, and I think it was probably the first time I went to any kind of intellectual conversation about a movie. Um, and I remember talking to the history teacher after, and it was pretty inspiring, and it just goes to show you how important community programs are to the development of burgeoning minds. And um, I hope that that is something that we can all get back to in the future in person. And um, I miss you guys, and I, I worry for New York and Brooklyn and... Yeah, uh, love from, love to my former home from, well, from, love to my forever home from my current home, California. Oh, I forgot the recommendation. Um, the recommendation was to watch any Akuru Kurosawa movie featuring Toshiro Mifune, and if they're on the Criterion channel, and if um, you want to do a double feature, I recommend Stray Dog. Uh, an early Mifune Akira Kurosawa collaboration about a cop who loses his gun. It's amazing. And then a later one called High and Low, which is one of the best films ever made, I think. Um, incredible kidnap cop drama, procedural, life-changing. Okay, bye. Miss you guys. Weekend weather with Griffin. Weekend weather with Griffin. Hey everybody, it's Junior Meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. High, 58, low, 45 on Friday. It will be raining, so after the rain, try to spot a rainbow. If you can't, make a rainbow and put it on your door so that everyone can see one. Saturday, high, 53, low, 44. It will be cloudy. Sunday, high 51, low 46, cloudy again. 
Weekly fun facts. Holidays to celebrate while you're social distancing this weekend. Friday, find a rainbow day, like I explained on during the Friday forecast. Saturday, National Handmade Day, so make a present or a virtual hug for your family. Sunday, deep dish pizza day, so get out your fork and have some pizza. Thank you for listening. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barri. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Ross Tuttle, Justin Bryant, Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Taylor, Lauren, and Charlie's friend John, who provided the soundtrack for this episode. If you have something to say and want us to share it, all you have to do is call 917-719-0021. Tell us your name, where you're calling from, email, we'll edit this out, we just want to know how to reach you, and any and all of the things that you need or want to say. It can be a story, a joke, a secret, a coping mechanism, a hope, a regret, something that you overheard from six feet away, or have been thinking about, worrying about, a thing that scared you, or a thing that made you smile. Or you can recommend a movie, or a book, or an app, or an album, or even, yes, a podcast. And if you'd rather just record yourself and send it in, open up your phone's voice memos or voice recorder app, hit record, tell us anything you want to share, and email the audio file to brooklynusapodcast at gmail.com. We're here when you need us, and we can't wait to hear from you. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. While you're there, check out some of the other hottest content coming out of Brooklyn, including our latest scripted series, Sauce, and our newest Be Heard Docs, where we're capturing COVID in Brooklyn. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. You know, our government now, you know, our, well, condoms will break. That's right. Yes. Condoms will break. <laughs> but there is no question that the vows of abstinence break far more easily than does latex condoms. <laughs>